Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In this episode, It's a Jungle Out There, four authors contemplate the lives of animals. What is it like living in a dog-eat-dog world? Has human habitation spelt the death of some species? And what happens when we encroach on their world? We begin with some short but very powerful microfiction. Taken by Melbourne writer Michelle Wright, is narrated by Alex Williams and was recorded live at Knox Street Bar. The afternoon he was taken. The rangers put up beach closure signs and the patrols began by sea and air. The lone witness had said it was a great white. Big as a camper van, he'd said. The police officer introduced her to the man coordinating the search. So you're the young man's mother, she said, and his name's Josh. When they reopened the beach three days later, they warned her as softly as they could that there was little chance of finding body parts. We think the shark took everything, they said. She looked straight into their faces, and though they tried, they couldn't look straight back. Four days after they set the drum lines, they called to say they'd caught it. She went down to the beach and waited. She wanted so much to hate it. She wanted to spit on it, to kick its oily flank, to spew her grief into its jaws. She demanded to know why, of all the flesh and blood it could have taken, it had chosen hers to take. But when at last she saw its face with its fearful, lifeless eyes, all she truly wanted was to stand and stare and weep. That was taken by Michelle Wright and can be found in the anthology Flashing the Square. Our next microfiction, The Last Hair, was published in Out of Place, an anthology which challenged writers to come up with 200-word stories which explored the idea of feeling out of place. You can read interviews with some of these authors about their stories on the Spineless Wonders blog at www.shortaustralianstories.com.au. In The Last Hair, Wollongong poet Irene Wilkie turns to her own backyard to contemplate the idea of being out of place. The story was recorded at Knox Street Bar and is narrated by me. The Last Hair. The hair's long ears stand and turn. Survival is his tutored game. Ginger-haired and the size of a poodle, he lopes silently out of the bushland reserve. Here, politically misplaced, he should not be growing fat on environmentally conserved and native grasses, should not be stealing sustenance from the mouths of wallabies, should not be seeking diversity in my rose garden. He watches me and listens, and I let him have his rose. He knows I'm no shooter, or fox, or dog. I know where his burrow dives under flat sandstone. 
He knows I know and would invite me there if I could fit. It's a secret between us. The other secret I know, but will never tell him, is that he is the last hare in this reserve. He has made friends with the wombat under my house and the possum in my roof and the echidna in my garden. And me. He is content. My roses bloom each day. There are plenty for us both. That was The Last Hair by Irene Wilkie. In our next microfiction, author Caitlin Farnsworth writes from the point of view of an iconic bird. Here's Melbourne voice artist Melita Rien reading Seagull. Bleak sun, curling waves, short stubby grass, hands everywhere, corn chips scattered, guacamole unopened, a faded picnic rug. Seagull watching, beady eyes flickering, moving up and down, side to side, stringy legs step carefully. Wings rustle, flap, shiver in blue light, rain dances from the sky, clear threads of light. Silence. And then, running, racing, Scooping the chip up, turning away, soft white head shining. He looks back. They're staring at him, his plush feathers worn and weakened. They're standing and laughing, curved fingers pointing as he makes his great escape. He carries the corn chip in his mouth, letting saliva warm it up, turn it soggy. He lifts himself up into the wind, stretches his wings, his long, beautiful wings, and glides. The chip dangles from his mouth. He bites down on it, and it falls. It collapses into the sea. He watches it tumble, takes a gulp of stagnant air, swoops and follows it. That was Seagull by Melbourne author Caitlin Farnsworth, published in Flashing the Square by Spineless Wonders. Our final story is another one which I performed at our Little Fiction's live show at Knox Street Bar. The story is Bound, and it comes from a collection of stories by Kate Liston-Mills called The Waterfowl Are Drunk. Kate is a writer who lives, loves and writes about her hometown of Pambula on the southern New South Wales coast. I recently recorded an interview with Kate via phone and asked about this story and her writing life. I'll be back after this story to play you that interview, but meanwhile, here's how Kate describes Bound, the story you're about to hear. So Bound, uh, well, Bound has an all-animal cast. Set in the Pambula wetlands, and it follows the story of a particular group of waterbirds, and they're running one day with uh, with a pesky fox. Think red dirt, murky water, and tired trees. Think of a day when even the birds want to pluck off their own feathers and drench their bumpy skin. The Pambula wetlands are an oasis of fringes on what some would call a dated town. 
A red brush of tail whips in and out of the bushes at the periphery. The only sound is the croak of frogs rumbling across the water. Three waterfowl sit on the fence, watching the fox stuff around in the wattle, trying to avoid getting wet. The threat of a fox is almost too much to bear in this heat. They squawk in warning. A mob of kangaroos stands with their chests out near the trees on the edge of the wetlands. There are even some joeys in pouches scratching their ears. The stench of rot and fetid water is inescapable. It follows all the summers before when the horizon bent like fireflight and smoke hung in the air, as if just moving might create sparks. A sweet nostalgia blends with the croaks and sits on the tilted horizon. Bulging green buddles blot the earth, linked together by cracks. It's like one big join the dots. Hundreds of mosquitoes skim along the surface. They are ice skaters with the frailest of legs. Spindly patterns dazzle in the sun before vanishing to thick green. Croak, croak, croak. The red fox is so hungry he dribbles as he stalks. His tongue has turned white and is craving bird. One waterfowl flies to the ground and scratches the soil. Its beak dashes down, plucks out a red worm and slurps it down as if it were a slushy. Beyond the fowls, the water is still and glassy grey. Two wood ducks swim around the spike rushes. The spike rushes are their home. Little puffs of feathers can be seen paddling around behind the two adult ducks. There are five ducklings all up. Every now and then, a parent comes round and ducklings to deliver a lesson in diving down for food. The little faces surface, confused and wet. In the centre of the waterhole, on top of a large mound of dirt and foliage, a black swan is keeping her eggs warm. They are yet to crack, but they're close. She has named them all. She has planted her glittering hopes on each shell. Her long neck bends down every few moments to tuck in her plume. This centre mound is the swan's home, and the rushes have been bowed to make a nest. The swans look like kings sitting there among the foliage in the middle of everything. The strained bellows of cows being herded up for branding puncture the swollen air of the wetlands. Some Frisians have stuck out through a fallen barbed wire fence and are scooting up the Princess Highway. The fox is momentarily distracted. The mother swan feels the bumps of a shell moving and calls her mate. They hustle together over the mound, waiting, staring at the little chips now showing in the top of the eggs. The parents shade the birthing birds as the sun beats down. The cygnet's eyes, not yet open, are glued with fluid. And through the flurry of feathers and calls, the cygnets plop out of the eggs and sog up the earth. Croak, croak, croak. The cows disappear into scrub. The fox can be seen clearly now, his feet well underwater. His tail is like its own creature, bushy and drenched, bobbing through like a rat. Downtrodden rockweed and pig face give him stepping spots here and there. It's quiet as he crouches in the long grass. The fox's red hair almost camouflaged in the dry bushes and sunset. 
As the fox nears, the black male swan raises his head and his red beak unlocks as if silently screaming. The ducks are watching, drifting in and out of the ribbon weed. There's not much they can do as the fox picks up his pace. Their quacks, almost inaudible, are strained. They are already grieving. They herd up their ducklings and waddle towards a fence. One by one, they help the little ones up onto the fence out of danger. The fox is running very fast now and the female swan lets out an excruciating cry. Her feathers are falling. One little signet has forced open its eyes and is searching for its mother's face. Their eyes meet for a brief second. The waterfowl and duck shriek from the fence as the fox snaps at the swans and devours all four baby birds. The day is dying. The orange ruddiness of the sky pulls a blanket over the feeding fox sitting on top of the foliage. Everything is orange. The swans are hysterical. There's a black flurry of feathers covering the mound, but they can do very little. The fox's teeth gnash and crack the shells and tiny bones. Such a long crackling chew, snaps of wing and skull. The female swan doesn't know herself. Since laying, she's forgotten she was her children. If only she had human hands to pick them up and hold them high and out of reach. The thing she could do with human hands, but it's too late now. The black swans stretch out their long wings and fly away, high into the sky's blackened sarcophagus. The blood is bright against the earth, with the dregs blowing out into the water where the birds would all swim. The swans will be back, but not right now. The fox, high on protein, returns to where he came from. It doesn't belong anywhere, prowling continually around these butchered bogs. He flounders away, slaver lining his chops like glycerin, bits of hot bitumen melting to his paws. Croak, croak. Everyone in the wetlands witnessed the killing. The damage drills down into their feathered bodies and wedges into their souls. Though they'd never spoken with the swans, the ducks feel the gaping hole in their family like it's their own. Their commonalities had always been more apparent, their home, their love of the wetland, their devotion to family. But now they feel their differences more than anything. Like an eel has bitten off their own feet and they can no longer walk. In the bigger swamps and dams, life can go on. Birds continue breeding, feeding, swimming, with just the immediate family left reeling. Here in Pambula's wetlands, everything stops. And the baby swans are grieved over many weeks, sometimes years. The water grows dull and the stars don't shine. They are just matte dots suspended in the black. They are unavoidable connections here, as if the swans are tied with twine to the ducks, as if the ducks are tied with twine to the waterfowl, and the waterfowl are tied with twine to the magpies and the egrets and the geese and the cranes and the swallows and the wrens. Three waterfowl are still sitting on the fence. There's a wriggling red worm in the soil below, but they're too frightened to get it. The ducklings are swimming very closely to their parents. They do not wander. The diving lessons are over. The day passes. Life can almost completely fly away. But the swans will always come back. 
twine is deceivingly strong. That was Bound by Kate Liston-Mills. And here's a recording of the chat I recently had with the Pambula-based author. So I'm joined today by Kate Liston-Mills, one of the Spineless Wonders authors, and we're going to be discussing one of her books, The Waterfowl Are Drunk. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Ella. (laughs) Hi. Um, Kate, Bound is the first story in your collection. What was the reason you wanted to lead with that particular work? Oh, well... It's a bit macabre as a first story, but I I needed something that would ground the reader and introduce the themes for the rest of the collection. Um, I also needed place to become uh, like a, a prominent and a visceral character within the overarching narrative. Bound allows the physical space to come alive and, and suitably pose as a backdrop for the rest of the short story. Um, you know, that end up moving into generational dramas within a family. Um, I guess you could almost say Bound is allegorical in the way it sets up the loss of loved ones, um, the colossal impact death has on a small town and the the deep connections that we all share in this world. Um, and I, I guess in a way we each become these birds at some point in our lives. Sometimes we're like the ducks watching on and feeling sympathy and, and sometimes we're the swans drowning in our own cataclysmic cloud of grief. What struck me with Bound was, I suppose, setting it um, in the natural world rather than mm. the human-populated world, but there's still echoes of those tragedies. And, you know, mm. in nature we kind of seem to somehow often accept death as just, oh, you know, part of the course, that's, that's part of natural life. But in our human world, you know, we, we feel it so deeply. I think what you've done really beautifully with Bound is is draw those parallels that, you know, the animals feel it so deeply. They feel that loss there. Yeah, I mean, there's always the possibility that their grief is just as profound as ours. Mm. And I think it's a really nice space to explore. And, and I think it's a nice um, place to start because natural environments and, and, you know, flora and fauna are, are very grounding in themselves anyway. Pambula features significantly in The Waterfowl are Drunk. Can you speak to the role of place in your writing? Yeah, sure. Um, the place was always going to be its own character and theme within within my collection, you know, in its own right, because Pambula and its idiosyncrasies play a major part in all of the stories. I wanted to explore the tensions between being young and craving the anonymity that the city provides and those of growing old and wanting safety and comfort and friends instead of strangers. I wanted to show the claustrophobia that one can feel in a small town and the complete lack of privacy often felt um, while also uh, sort of interrogating the deep connections between everyone and and in the waterfowl are drunk, like the profound effects one life can have on a whole town. Mm. So Pambula is your hometown, is that right? Yes. Okay, yep. and was it the place that you grew up or is it just the place that you live now? Well, it's the place that I grew up and then when I turned uh, 18, I moved away and I was away for about 12 years living in various cities. Mm-hmm. And then I moved back 
at about 28 or 29, around that age, I moved back um, tentatively and then permanently like a year later. And um, it's where my husband and child um, and I live now. Um, and we're pretty central. We're, we're right in the middle of town. So um, it's good to be back while also being frustrating at times. <laughs> I think what you capture so beautifully in Bound is that tension between um, a home place that you know so intimately and love and yet, as you say, can feel frustrated with or can feel, you know, trapped within. Um, yeah. It's the sort of experience I think, you know, you don't want to limit anyone to their writing capabilities, but I think that you notice specifically in people's childhood towns, you know, that kind of connection. So The Waterfowler Drunk is an illustrated collection and Gert Geyer is the artist. How did you come to work with her? Um, Bronwyn at Spineless Wonders paired us up. I'd never seen Gert's work before, but um, Bronwyn sent me some some work for her to look at. Uh, it's, it's quirky, bright, punchy. It's exactly the type of stuff that I love. It was a perfect pairing, I thought, at the time. And I... If I did another book, I would want her to illustrate it. She she was so good to work with. Um, and her interpretations of my story were exactly what the collection needed. I think it's quite a sentimental book. And I think if I had have done the illustrations myself, um, it would have been nowhere near as great as what Gert did. She, she uplifted it. Um, she gave it a lightness while still... Um, while still having depth, and and I loved everything she did with that book. They are beautiful illustrations, and I think, like you say, they do capture some of the lightness of it. There's, you know, a certain element of of whimsy in some of the telling of the stories, and Mm -hmm. the images, I think, tie in with that sense really beautifully without being too kind of twee or, or, you know, over the top um, in terms of the sentimentality. She's struck a really beautiful balance there. I'm looking yeah. at the image now by Gert that accompanies um, today's story bound and I wonder if you could please describe it to our listeners and explains how it reflects the story. Of course. Um, so that image takes up sort of half of a, a blank page. So it sort of takes up the bottom half of the page. So I, at the time I was like, oh, why would you do that? But it just it stands out and it makes the story so much more... Um, what the story's about, which isn't loud, it's not in your face. It's like going on behind the scenes of Pambula. Um, so it's a lively sort of image of a mother swan and her little uncracked eggs that she's been fastidiously guarding. Um, it's got a purple swamp hen in it watching on and a mischievous fox sort of dallying above and around the swan. The sun is large and golden above them, and yet the backdrop is quite a dark blue. And I love this despite the cheekiness of the fox. You do get that sense of foreboding, um, sort of darkness creeping into the picture. Um, Gert has done this so perfectly um, by capturing that darkness in such a sort of a fun um, way. She, she really did it perfectly. I love also, um, well, this is my interpretation, little drips 
from the fox's mouth, a bit of salivation perhaps <laughs> in anticipation yeah. of those delicious eggs. <laughs> I know. And, I, I mean, you've got the two things going on. Like the fox is just doing his bit in, in nature. He is That's his diet, but he's going to survive. He's getting some food for himself. While at the same time you feel the, the incredible loss of the mother swan and, and the father swan who lose everything that they've been guarding and working on for, for so long. Um, so it's, it is a beautiful image. Kate, you've had a couple of pieces performed at our Little Fictions live events. Have you been there for those? I was. I think I've seen Bound perform twice. Yep. Um, or maybe, yeah, no, I've, I've heard Bound performed once but then the second time I actually heard a recording of it. Yeah. And so the, it was just such uh, it was a real treat <laughs> to be there. Um, yeah, I guess I've heard actors talk about why they love theatre as opposed to TV and movies because um, I think there is something really wonderful um, and confronting about seeing a narrative told to you in real time because it's immediate and it's raw. And I remember standing there um oh, my God, hearing someone read my work. It was such a big honour. Um, but it's just great to see it come to life um, and see for yourself how people react to it. And when I saw Bound performed, it was in Wollongong, um, I think it was during the Writers Festival, maybe last year um, or maybe the year before. I was, I was quite shocked at the effect it had on people, especially like mothers who were standing around me. And one friend of mine was all teary after it finished. And, yeah, I guess it is such a solemn piece. Um, but to see it being felt like I felt it was super cool um, and something I'll always remember. That was um, that was actually me at the Wollongong Writers <laughs> Festival. Yeah, reading it. Uh, I remember that as well. Um, it's a... It's such an interesting piece because I think people think, oh, I'm going along to hear some stories read and um, and then you, fun. yeah, this will be fun. And then you hit them with something that's, you know, quite heavy, that's got a real sort mm-hmm. of, you know, dark edge to it, mm-hmm. um, but is nonetheless, you know, draws you in and, and really does take you on a journey. You were excellent. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the writing. Makes our job much, much easier. Um, so... That process of handing over your work to another creative for interpretation, whether that's an illustrator or it's an actor, is that a difficult one for you? Oh, no. I thought maybe it would be. And I remember it used to be when I first started studying writing at uni, it was very hard to receive feedback and very hard to hand your work over. But I I can say easily now it's not not hard now I read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert um, and now after thinking about that for a long time I don't really attach any ego to any of the things I write anymore so the way I see it um, the narrative must leave me and it has to go out into the world for someone to make of it what they will and I, I do I find it exciting to see it being explored and felt by others I'm like I'm done with it <laughs> I've done my bit um, and now it needs to be read, felt and acted, interpreted, reinterpreted and, and to be kept alive. Um, handing over your story to someone else can be at times a bit uncomfortable. Uh, and I do remember that feeling very well. 
Um, but it is an inevitable and necessary part of creating. That's all we have time for for today. Thanks for listening and do drop us a line with any feedback about our show at the 2RPH website or their Facebook page. Today's episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bronwyn Meehan and our sound engineer was Kit McCutcheon. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me again for Little Fictions On Air. <laughs>